Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 96. This episode is with performance coach Sam Bowring. Sam came on to talk about his background and his career path so far. We spoke about the lessons he took from his professional rugby career. We spoke about his um, long-term athletic development philosophy. We spoke about the biggest challenges he faces with academy players and the academy programme. And then we also uh, delved into um, strength training with academy players. So we looked at, or we spoke about uh, movement screening, his thoughts on movement screening, the screens that he uses, the movements he uses, and the approach he takes with his players in regards to movement screening, which is really interesting. And listen out for that part of the episode He also spoke on um, his thoughts on the FIFA 11 and he related that back to his research that he did on that as well. And then also how he structures strength training with players. Um, So it was was great to have Sam on. I think there's some really, really key takeaways in this one. I say at the end of the episode, but I honestly think this is one of those episodes that there's so many practical things you could take away from it. If you're working in an academy environment, I think you'll relate to a hell of a lot of things that, that Sam's talking about. And um, some of the things he touches on and the way he talks about the way he works, I think it's really practical information that you could take into your practice and, pro- and probably put into play straight away. Like, and I said it in uh, towards the end of the episode, I think, as well, but we always need to um, keep context in mind with applying new things into our practice. But um, I honestly do think there's loads in this one. And I said that to Sam both on air and off air after the episode that, I really appreciated him being so open and honest. And we, we said about before the episode that I didn't want it to be um, going to too much science or um, too many systems and things that he's got into place. But I wanted to just hear his thoughts and his experiences and some practical things that we could take away. And I think we nailed it with this one. So really appreciate Sam coming on and giving up his time. Like I said at the start, this is episode 96. We are edging closer to that 100 mark. And I'm trying to get some exciting plans in place for the episode 100 so if you have got any recommendations of guests or anyone that you want to hear on that episode but also other episodes as well or topics because we've had a few people reaching out on topics they want to hear covered on the episode um, please do so drop us an email mail at footballfitfed.com or drop us a message on social media with twitter and instagram at footballfitfed it'd be great to hear from you And um, yeah, we want to get the next few episodes confirmed and get a really exciting episode for episode 100. So keep an eye out for that and get in touch if you've got any thoughts or anyone that you want to hear from. But enjoy the episode with Sam Bowery. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 96. I'm joined today by Sam Bowering, a performance coach. Sam, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, Ben. How are you yourself? I'm good, mate. Thank you. Yeah, it's... uh, good. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Really appreciate you coming on. No, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Obviously, it gives me an opportunity to talk about my experiences and hopefully someone out there will take any bit of knowledge or anything off my my experiences. 
that's why I love these these podcasts, to be honest, because um, it allows me to reach out to people like yourself. And we've just had a little chat before we started recording. And who knows, that chat might have not happened if uh, if you didn't have the podcast in place. So it's it's yeah, selfish definitely. from my point of view, but um, <laughs> it allows me to reach out to plenty of people. So no, I appreciate you coming on. And I know there's loads of quality stuff that we're going to talk about in this one, which you briefly touched on just before we started recording. So um, well, let's just kick us off, mate. Let's go into your career. So just talk through your career so far, um, any experiences, and then I'm sure we'll bring some of those back up. Yeah, cool. Okay, so, um, yeah, hi, everyone. So I think mostly mostly for me in terms of experience, in terms of sport, um, always been a sporty guy from young, the kid that did everything at school, got sports tie, things like that. Um, But luckily I was quite talented at rugby at the time and went through professional academy rugby, rugby league with Paul KR. Managed to play professionally for two years, um, mostly within that point as well. That's when the coaching side took on for me. Um, so even when I was playing professional rugby, I always had an interest in coaching. I was already doing voluntary rugby league games for the secondary school that I was at. Um, always sort of working within community sports. Um, so when it sort of came to the period where I'm actually figuring out that I'm not going to make a living out of rugby league and sort of in rugby league, there's only one division that's professional, really, and the rest of it's all part-time. Um, so I had to quickly find out what I wanted to do. So I used the university sort of route at Hull University, got my uh, BSc in sports coach and performance, and that's when it allowed me to go on to do my MSc. But I think the most key thing for myself was I was able to get my coaching experience, and it wasn't just working in community sports. It was actually working across PPA classroom cover. So that was going into primary schools when... P lessons, for example, actually having to do frameworks, delivery programs, actually think about the progressions and regressions of actually getting what you want out of a lesson. And number one, it's allowed me to do some really good things. It's allowed me to do some really bad things, but mostly from looking about it from where I am now, I wouldn't be anywhere close to what I would be for today for one of them type of experiences. And I think that's one thing that luckily, whilst I was at university, I already had about three or four years of coaching experience. So once I mostly went out and wanted to, wanted to get into elite sport from a backroom staff side of things, I already had that sort of coaching experience to then go and deliver straight into um, academy footballs, which I was luckily to do, able to do. And then from there, you moved on into, like you just mentioned, into into football from that from that point, was it? Yeah, so luckily, um, Hull City at the time were a Category 3 academy. Um, they were looking to upgrade to Category 2. Um, at the time, there was no like official partnership with the university and the football club. Um, and lucky, luckily, they offered out three uh, master's internships, so one being an analysis position, one being a first-team position, another being an academy position. Um, to be fair, I went for the first-team position because obviously you think first-team this, first-team that. But... Looking back at it now, based on my experience of already working with children, already working within primary schools, secondary schools, doing breakfast clubs, morning clubs, it was mostly the perfect scenario for me to go into academy football. Um, mostly, I didn't realise at the time that mostly all they wanted someone at the time was, well, can you can you can you manage a group group of children? And I was like, yeah, I've done it for five years already. <laughs> so luckily, that was mostly straight in. With my, that was mostly the straight answer that they wanted. Um, and then mostly with the sports science, the S&C aspect, just kept developing off from that. But luckily, I was already able to work with University of Hull before, where 
I was able to work for them doing the university presentation. So when I actually came down to the interview side of things, I've already had my practical experience of doing nearly five years of coaching. The university was really good at making sure that you were like bang on with your presentations. So most when it came to my interview, I was pretty much as prepped as you could be. I know we I think it's always great to speak to people about what they've done before SNC Sports Science because there's loads of people that have brought up like numerous jobs, whether it's waiting on working in cafes and they always bring back like the development of soft skills and things like that. But yeah. teaching must be one that's like you must be able to have a number of different skills that you, um, whether you realized it or not at the time, were developing at that point that you've taken into the coaching, um, I suppose your coaching practice. Yeah, definitely. Like, you know what? In one way, it was easier for me to be in an academy, actually coaching whilst learning the SNC experiences. Whilst when I was going to schools, he was having to work with children that I like, do not like PE. <laughs> yeah. So you've already, like, sometimes, like, we talk, like, I noticed there's been chat about how we've got a footballer and he's maybe not had the education or he's just not within the buying process, but he's still part of his job. Mm. to be in that environment whereas you've got a nine-year-old sat on the floor crossing her arms saying I don't like PE I want to do maths instead like what do you do <laughs> and luckily I'm much sure there's equivalence in academy football as well is it not quite at that level but <laughs> <laughs> exactly so like just even like just sort of behavior just like so many little experiences so like I don't know whether you'll be able to see see on it but I'm six foot two I'm nearly 100 kilos so in terms of not boasting my own trumpet, I think I've, I'm, in terms of figure, I've got a bit of a presence. And when you try and talk to an eight or nine-year-old and trying to get them to learn a key skill, there is no point in me standing up to them. So even from the ex- experiences that I've had from younger was actually understanding, well, actually, go down to their level, make sure they're equal. So they can actually see your face, you can actually see, but you're not just this, this big friendly giant that's trying to make you run around. And I think that's some of the soft skills, especially... I mean, the teaching experiences, but I don't think that many people have picked up until they get into academy football. Um, and most of for myself, I was really lucky picking them little soft skills up without even knowing. Um, and even doing on bits on the side within that, like you said about other people's previous experiences. When I was 16, I was doing fish and chip, sh- fish and chip shop server. So that was nice every Friday, get my fish and chips, walking home. Um, was in. Yeah. <laughs> so you'd be absolutely buzzing like, when I'm walking down there and thinking I'm the, I'm the king. But, <laughs> but no, but even just like them little soft skill experiences of just managing talking to people to kill time because I'm waiting for the fish to be cooked. They're waiting for the fish and chips because they're angry. <laughs> and yeah. you're just trying to make chat without making it absolutely pointless. And I think that's where even that type of understanding where the amount of times when you stood on a football pitch and you stood next to a coach and the team's getting battered, mm. how do you kill that sort of space and then you've got to travel two hours away? And I think just keep having that sort of soft skill approach of knowing what to talk about, when to talk about things, and also from the coaching side of things with children is the exact same thing. It's not understanding what type of day they've had. Maybe potentially they've had a bad day. Obviously, different kids, different backgrounds. It can all lead to one thing. And I really think having sort of the soft skill set before you get out of university is massive, especially in this day and age, because the amount of people that like, have messed me on LinkedIn, they've got a master's, but they've only got one year of coaching. Yeah. And I think that's something that really will kill some people off in terms of 
being in the sports science industry and S&C world to having to go somewhere else because of not having enough experience. No, I fully agree. I fully agree. And it's, it's great to reflect on it, isn't it? Because at those times when you're in the fish and chip shop or you're doing whatever, you're not thinking, oh, this is going to be great for my coaching career. But then when you reflect on it and look back, then you realize you've taken a hell of a lot from it and developed a lot yeah, of skills definitely. that you potentially might not have had um, oh, or yeah. not have been as confident as if you didn't go through those experiences. And, mm. and just tying in with experiences, we, we couldn't go on without touching on your rugby career as well and also how that has influenced your practice because I always like to speak to people that have worked or in your case played other sports to see how that mm. relates to how you operate as a coach so what are what are some of the carryovers, carryovers if there are any from your um your rugby career yeah um I think the one you know, one best thing to mostly say about rugby and especially rugby league where I, where I played but I think the one thing is is like there is such a team atmosphere within it. And I don't get me wrong, I think academy, the academy and football in general has improved massively within that in terms of everyone's under one bracket, everyone's under the same philosophy. But I think from the from the very start, even from grassroots all the way through to like your community clubs, all the way through to your professional clubs, it's a real mentality that everyone's in it together. Um, and sort of mostly that experience myself has really allowed me to sort of allow people to sort of buy into my process as well. And I think with the rugby aspect itself, like the training with rugby, I think looking back at it now, you'd call it old school. <laughs> but I think the main thing is like I had a really, really good SNC conditioner, but he was who had, I think even must have been rugby league for about 20 years. But he knew how to develop a body. Granted, some of it, mostly you look back at it now, athletically, mostly wasn't there, but you knew how to put muscle mass on. Mm. And I think that's one thing with rugby is that, obviously, I think a lot of that aspect has changed now because mostly at the time I didn't have very good movement skills. I was a bit gangly, but ultimately it managed to make me put muscle mass on and get and progress throughout my career. Now, whereas I think, especially in terms of the rugby aspect to how it did with football, they always put the physical first. And then the technical. And I think that's most because of obviously the contact sport that it is. But I think a lot of the time as well is understanding that the only big gains that you're going to get, if you want an athlete to have muscle mass on, are you going to get it after he's just been flogged outside and he's got half an hour to then come in and do a strength gym session where you want him to be lifting maximal weight, or are you going to flip it? Mm. And I think that's mostly one thing that in terms of practices that I've brought in with the rugby aspect moving forward is that right, okay, so we're going to go for a physical day. We want to make sure they have a good strength stimulus within the gym, but also have a decent hit out on the field. Right, what's the possibility of getting the gym based in first? And obviously, I know every team has their own logistic nightmares, whether that's being based in the same um, facility as the first team and waiting for the first team to know what they're doing, etc. But look, I think with my aspects and the experience that I had with the SNC being based in rugby, it was more or less right. It's a physical day, but we've got to do the gym work first. And I think that slowly, sort of mentality-wise, as a whole of a football, is starting to shift now. And obviously, the aspects I think a lot of the time now is coaches are getting a lot more experiences and a lot more exposure to sort of the physical development aspect and how to improve it without just having their coaching head on from a technical and tactical point of view. And um, also from the rugby side, I think 
mentality with players is a lot different. So I think um, with rugby, the amount of players that will just run through a brick wall and won't stop until you literally make them stop is another aspect. Whereas I think there's still that typical idea in football that lifting weights makes you get too big and makes you become slow. Um, and that's mostly again still changing. I think from what I've, from since working in football, and buying's a lot more there. But I think mostly at the start of when I was coming to my internship, there was still that sort of theory that too much weight or too much time in the gym would develop that. Um, and I think mostly from there as to what I've brought to the game in terms of me transitioning to football is mostly. When, the, when we do run gym, it's a mentality of being individual, focused on yourself, that sort of selfish aspect. Um, especially in academy football, I think sometimes kids get lost up, but it seems really far away, the dream. So if you've got an under-16, under-15, that's just coming from, from being at school. Realistically, the way football is, they've maybe got three, or three years to get a first team gig, and then that could be it for them, because some people class them as too old. Mm. and sometimes it's getting to understand and really trying to get their mentality to be a bit more mature and a bit more selfish mm. rather than having too much of joyous time with the teammates and think, oh, we're in the gym for a laugh. Mm. Um, I think that's much of the best thing I've brought across from rugby and the sort of them little soft transition skills again from rugby and then how that's been implemented. And the condition I had at Hulkar, he was like a very mental strength and conditioning coach as well. Um, which was mostly another aspect that, that he brought in. So he would personally tell you the wrong sets, the wrong reps as to what you were doing outfield, absolutely get you knackered, and then go, that's it. <laughs> you know what? We had um, Adam Kerr, I think it was Adam Kerr, said similar. He, he uses similar tricks. So he, I think he used to uh, use it with um, top up runs yeah. and players after games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He told a very similar story that he used to say, right, we're doing eight, for example, and mm. then go through four of them and he'd be like, right, you're done. So it's, it's yeah. funny how it crosses over, but I, I get yeah, exactly what you mean with that sort of thing. And I imagine it's a bit more extreme with the ro- on the rugby side. <laughs> but <laughs> I, can, I know a lot of people that do that same sort of thing. Yeah, I think mostly rugby, like it, in terms of the environment, rugby can be absolutely brutal. Um, I know we talk about sort of football, brutal in terms of having fantasy and having that sort of personality to deal with it but rugby mostly because it's such a confrontational sport mm. the banter can be very confrontational as well mm. um, and especially where sort of the old school I don't think you've ever heard of the Malcolm drill I have but I couldn't tell you what it is so basically you're on the line you're on your belly you stand up fast you can you sprint forward 10 on your belly, back up, okay, spring back 20 metres, yeah. belly, back, and back to your start. So you're basically covering a 20 metre gap, but one rep, you're looking at 40 metres all overall. Yeah. And it'd be sort of, and basically you don't stop, you do six reps pretty much without stopping. So it's about a minute, one minute, 15 worth of activity. Mm. Um, but you'd predominantly in rugby, as a, it's usually used as a punishment, it'd be like sort of three sets of doing that. But it's one of them where you are absolutely huffing and puffing. If you're not fit and your body's not really useful to getting up and down like it is in rugby, 
then you've got a little mind in your, you've got a little voice in your head telling you to quit and then you've got a conditioner telling you there's another two left, but really. So <laughs> 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 mostly from them little aspects of like the rugby side of things, it's just actually transitioning out across and sort of keeping players on the toes and not sort of them not knowing what's coming. I think that's the best way. I think that's what sort of I've learned from rugby is sort of play with the mind a little bit. Because yeah. a lot of the time, like, I think it's mostly become a, come out a lot more prominent now regarding the with the lockdown. Um, everyone's been talking about how they've kept their mind occupied. Mm. Um, I think mostly that'll be the next aspect of research and everything else that'll better move on, I think. Yeah. And I, one thing I wanted to ask and get you to talk about a little bit more, and, and this is, might be a bit of a rhetorical question because it's something that I think a lot of coaches are battling with, um, especially in academy football, is that switch of culture in the gym environment from, like you said before, about players going in and sort of just going through the motions to actually going in and knowing. And I love the sort of approach of making it individual for them, so them improving themselves rather than comparing themselves to everyone mm. else that are in there. Because I'm sure anyone that's worked in that environment has seen that, like everyone constantly yeah. sort of comparing and being a bit hesitant on things. Um, but what's your approach to getting players to... Um, trust the, the gym process and then also get rid of the myths that getting stronger and lifting heavy will will make you slow? Yeah. I think a lot of the time I try and use sort of when people talk to me about oh, how, do, how do rugby players get so big yet so quick? It's actually the fact, well, one is giving them that education to of understanding that if you want to get quicker, you're going to have to sprint more. Mm. And I think a lot more footballers are starting to get that now especially the technical ones because especially in academy football usually the best technical players are the least physical mm. in terms of the scores and the ones that are ranked one to five um, especially in my experiences where predominantly I've worked with category two to three academy players mm. um, and obviously the more physical players are mostly arguably the less technical of the players that are ranked and so it's sort of getting them to then understand going, well, look, that's your strength, but this is what you've got to work on, work upon as your weakness and vice versa. And I think when we, especially from my experiences at Hull City, we use the um, play review to use that as a bit of an education tool. Um, so myself would sit in amongst everything from everything from 12 to 16's play reviews to give them literally a, an individual concept as to why they are doing it specifically for them, whether that's based on their position because they use as a utility player and they actually haven't got a specific position yet, whether that's based on their PHV, whether that's based on not gaining PHV yet and we've got to be patient with them. Mm. Um, I think ultimately it's just using that sort of soft skill set to sort of help the parents use that sort of buying approach and... Um, I've been a bit wacky with education on it. So I use my dog. It's a Springer Poodle. So it's quite lively. Agility-wise, it's biomechanically perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so I just record it. And then I show people, this is why my dog's so good, because it's got his hips aligned, a hips move with the knees, a hips move with the shoulders, and it's all simultaneous. But how many times is you doing it within one rep of me throwing a ball? Mm. And then they get some time, oh, yeah, she's, well, She's just practicing, 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 practicing. Mm. I mean, that's just sort of the educational process to how to try and get the players to buy into it. Now, mostly from a physical aspect, when we're actually in the gym, um, I like to do this thing where 
it's 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 basically mobility and stability, but I just call it personal prep. And it's just giving players that skill set to understand what the body feels. So, for example, a massive person on doing the overhead squat, um, and that's just with a dial above the head, do five overhead squats, what stiffness do you feel? And sort of get the players to understand, especially at academy level where some of them still don't understand what their body is in terms of what stiff actually means, what's pain, what's muscular sore. Um, and it's sort of just gradually just trying to build up on that knowledge and then going, right, okay, so you've got, you feel tight in hamstrings. So what have we done already to make sure that we get we try and reduce it as much as we can and then sort of get them to feedback what they've already done or to tell me the answer. And hopefully they become their own teacher in themselves. And then sort of that education process keeps moving forward from there. Um, and I suppose using that aspect for myself is then how the S&C side of things and then developing the muscle aspect and developing the lean tissue sort of develops from there. Um, I suppose mostly from there, that's where it's just dependent on the individual. And I think that's where mostly in terms of my work is really, really strong. Because then you, I'm guessing you just revert back to those reviews and then when you're talking to those players in the gym, because I love that, that you make it really interactive because, again, mm. we were just talking off air about, about screening and we'll go into it a little bit more into some of your practices in a second. Um, but you see people doing things like the overhead squat and we've got like a tick sheet of things that we're looking for yeah. and all the rest of it. But when you've used it a few times, especially with footballers or you have a certain sport, you see trends, don't you? Yeah, and massively. you could say to a player all day long, you're tight here, you're weak here and all the rest of it. But what does that mean to them? And I love that, that you make it interactive, that they feel it. And mm. they, like you said, they teach themselves. I, I think that's a great yeah. way of, of putting it and um, getting players to interact with it. Mm. Like, I, like I try and use it as a bit of a pre and post like measurement, just because it's easy where you can just get them into a dial, do it, and they can feel it without much way you can then talk to other, like when I say talk to other people, talk to other athletes to make sure they're then getting catered for and sort of then they can come back and go, oh Sam, it's actually feeling a bit more on my back now. Like I've stretched, I've stretched my glute off now. Like what can I do for my back? And then right, I'll say, right, we're going to crucifix position. Let's rotate, hold it. And then all of a sudden they're going, right, okay, so that's my back exercise that I might need to do next time. Yeah. And I think that's just sort of keeps developing and keeps developing. And um, Mostly, for me is mostly especially from the rugby aspect where I just got I just got put on I got told to put on muscle mass no matter what of my movement. Mostly, my thought process is completely opposite from my experiences. But ultimately, if a player, if we know sort of like the best example for me is a centre half, where so many times they are pushed to say right they need to be bigger they need to be bigger, but at the same time. They'll get always get hammered centre backs because they can't change, they can't change direction effectively yeah. compared to other players. And it's like, well, hold on, you want them to get bigger, so we know that most of the time there'll be a little bit where you'll put on a bit of muscle mass and you'll slightly get a little bit like mostly like temporary, a temporary limitation on his movement patterns just because his body needs to adjust. So what are we going to provide from there and how we're going to determine? like his future, are we going to allow him to progress and put that muscle mass on and then develop his movement skills or are we going to develop his movement skills to then put muscle mass on? Mm. I think that's where a lot of the time I try and communicate that effectively with the coaches 
and sort of give them an understanding of, well, what are we going to aim for first? Are we going to aim for his technical proficiencies? Are we going to aim for his physical proficiencies? Mostly from my perspective, for a centre-half, because we know there should be a, the need to put sort of size on because of their positional demands, I'd say physical, as long as they've got the technical ability. Now, if they've already... If they don't have the technical ability and they need the physical, then most of his career is already going to be decided on his technical. Yeah. Um, I think that's a great sort of most, I think most probably from that aspect is then supporting the movement aspect to then being outside and how we can then relate that onto on field. Just a very quick update on our online community. So if anyone that hasn't checked the community out yet, we've got an online community with numerous webinars and presentations from our networking events that we help that we hold across the UK. So there are now over eight hours of webinars available on loads of different subjects from velocity-based training to recovery to nutrition. And we are adding new webinars on all the time and there's hopefully going to be some new webinars going on in the next couple of weeks. We've also got 10 of the presentations from our network meetings available to watch on demand as well. So uh, presentations from coaches like Head of Sports Science at Celtic, Jack Naylor, um, Academy Performance Manager down at Brighton, Dr. Will Abbott, and loads of others as well. So go and check those out. Um, Like I say, there are new webinars coming very soon. And as soon as we can get back to our networking events as well, we will be adding the presentations from those events to the community too. Um, So you can go and check it out. You can get a free month on the community by going to footballfitfed.com. Click in the community tab at the top, and if you sign up there, that gives you one month free. After the free month, it is only £4.99 per month going forward. So go and give it, go and um, check it out for free for a month. If you're happy with it and you want to stay a member, then it will only charge you £4.99 per month, and you'll get access to all the current content that is on there, but then also all future webinars and presentations as well. Um, We were also, like I said at the start of the episode, making plans for episode 100. So if you do have anyone in mind for that episode, please reach out, drop us a message um, and let us know who you want to hear. But here is part two of the podcast with Sam Bowring. I think that's you have that conversation a lot in the academy environment, or I know I certainly did in terms of like coaches just saying, oh, they need to put size on, they need to get stronger without really knowing what they're referring to because like you said just adding size and even with rugby that is a very very physical sport where you do need that muscle mass if you simply just got bigger and bigger and bigger in terms of like a bodybuilder that isn't necessarily going to help you because you still be need to be able to move and be robust and and Mm. stay injury free as much as possible don't you so there's a lot of other things and I think your your summary of it there was great but there's a lot of other things that go into getting bigger or getting stronger like there's there's different elements to that isn't there yeah definitely I think within academy football especially when we're talking mostly sort of the later aspect of sort of their development in terms of 16 plus where you can mostly control the environment a little bit more to what we want for that individual I think that's where mostly then becomes really based based on that individual whereas mostly most most programs from then age groups down you can't really manipulate or control enough because they're predominantly at school, they're probably doing all different areas of sports. And I think that's mostly one thing from the younger ages is when we're talking about developing these key movement skills is ultimately getting them moving, playing different sports, playing different 
areas, playing in different types of shapes, playing in different sort of formations to ultimately enhance them as a full athlete for hopefully when they play football. Mm, definitely. And I said we were going to dive into um, your screening process, the thoughts on screening. So we touched on the overhead squat, which is obviously something that you've used before. And mm. I'm sure there's a lot of people that use a number of different screening techniques and um, and movements or drills or whatever. But what's your general thoughts and then your process that you'll take players through? Yeah, so my general thoughts and process is, now my master's was based on um, warm up, a warm-up. Um, so it was comparing FIFA 11 plus to my own warm-up. Um, and basically that just allowed me to just sort of play around with sizes, sort of question the FIFA 11. So I know obviously a lot of clubs will use the FIFA 11 um, based on its sort of injury um, injury performance results. Now for me, it was just more or less trying to understand from my aspect, what does a player want to feel if that if we're only going to do like sort of a personal prep and then they're going outside into a warm-up, like what does a player need? So we so for example, um Numerous times where you've either got a place, this is mostly from an under-23s perspective, where you've only got a year or two years maximum with an under-23 player usually. Mm. Now, in terms of long-term athletic development process, it's mostly you're, you're picking your tools to where it fits on that on that framework and then you're mostly going from there. Mm. But ultimately, you've got to try and accelerate that process. Um, so it's mostly from my aspect is understanding any sort of injury previous history injury any sort of injury history issues and so I think the best player I can talk about mostly from last year when I was at Barnsley was um, he came with chronic ankle instability Um, massive I think from from speaking to the player I think he rolled it maybe five or six times last year um, when he was at another club and from talking to him about everything that he's been doing gym base wise and how he's been using his sort of personal movement screening and everything else was that he actually doesn't do enough ankle stability work. So we always talk about as practitioners of making sure we hit the main muscle groups, but the kid's never had a non, non like he's never had a tissue in muscle tissue injury. So he's obviously robust as it comes. He's in terms of gym getting to understand S and T wise is, is great because he was actually athletically good but he actually kept whirling his ankle all the time. So then using the personal prep and the movement screen, everything was done based on his ankles. So I was putting him to single leg positions and the, hop, the lateral hop test, obviously the 30 centimetres where to keep moving laterally for 30 seconds. And I was sort of more or less using that as my screen tool for him as an individual, just because of the ankle instability where now from when he does the functional move, if you put him through a functional movement screen, he'd mostly absolutely ace it because he's got lean muscle tissue. Um, overhead squat, he can nail. So he's like, well, okay, so he can nail all these things now, but he still had previous history. So how can we then develop that and develop his stability? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where mostly, from that aspect, the process is, it's all based on that individual. So have they got an injury history of rolling around ankles or have they got muscle tissue history, whatever it might be, and sort of leading that sort of program and that sort of intervention through that process and that's where I think it's great to speak to coaches about their experiences with screening because there's all these different models out there and we need to know when and where to use them don't we rather than just going through it and just accepting the fact that we we do the FMS which is fine like you Mm -hmm. said if a player goes through it and they ace it but there's still issues 
it's the experience of saying, well, what's the issue? Like you said, the injury history. And then how do we manipulate things to correct that? Because yeah, it's all well and good nice. getting through an FMS, isn't it? But then if they get out onto the pitch and they break down or they're not as efficient as they could be, then it's an issue, mm. isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So like, if, like for example, at, um, at Barnes, like in terms of the philosophy, the club, um, it bases itself on quite a high volume of training in terms of on-field. Um, and so from that, there's been players that have previously had history issues. And for at least me and, me and the physio that I worked with in the 23s, we're constantly trying to find the sort of answer or sort of a method that could sort of give us an answer as to, as to why certain players might break down or to why they struggle to recover. And this is mostly for someone that's had a hamstring issue in the past, was then we went, oh, okay, so we'll, we'll use the four steps and then we sort of use that single leg hamstring bridge to sort of measure the unilateral of each side. And then as soon as you know it, we purposely then had a measurement in place for after training, after they've done a hard session, right, we'll make sure we train the next day because we know it's going to be sort of a low day anyway. Let's measure them unilaterally on a hamstring bridge. Let's see what results we get. And predominantly, most of the time, we actually found out that the player's recovery isn't good enough because every time... We kept doing it after day after a game, or not so day after a game, day after a hard training session. It was actually coming across that he'd, sorry, his hamstring weakness was 20% more after than the previous day. Mm. So that's where, again, it's just sort of understanding the player, understanding if they've had any history issues, and sort of making sure that that sort of personal prep, as I call it, or their pre-activation is then based on, well, what can we do to stimulate them hamstrings now? So do we actually need, does he actually need to go into a stiff leg RDL, for example, and then go from there and then retest, right, does that actually facilitate muscle stimulation for you to then get back up to weakness? Or is it actually, is that sore and stiff? Do we need to then decrease his load within the next training session? Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully that sort of gives people a bit of an answer and a bit of an idea as to how sort of I... I sort of prep players from an S&C point of view, just from the start of the day. No, I think it definitely does. And then the step on from that that we wanted to talk about was the, the strength training side of things, um, mm. where that fits in. I know every club's going to be a bit different. You know, I know some people come on in and talk about like all these um, amazing programs that they're putting into place. And I can just hear in my head all these coaches that have got like 10 minutes to do a strength program they're going if only I had that time or them facilities or whatever um so it's obviously always it's always relative to the position you're in obviously facilities and all the rest of it but what was your what's your approach with players and um also I know we spoke about before you can tie in some of the challenges that you face with the academy players as well yeah um I suppose with the Personally, to touch upon the majority of my experiences with the academies that I've been in, mostly not had that much technology. So a lot of it's had to be a lot more hand, like not more based on the eye or a lot more based on observing the movement. I think a lot more of the time is sort of, from my experiences, is the transitional players. The ones that are technically really good and they're progressing throughout the phases, whether that's from the 12s to under 14s or 14s, going up to 16s or 16s, playing 18s football and so on. And mostly them players are mostly, from my experiences, are the hardest ones to make sure that they get the right dose. And sometimes because of their such technically advanced, 
but really their training experience of S&C is still low than most of what they're for the other environment that they've now been placed into. So a lot of the time is sometimes I'm, I'm microdosing it strength because they're getting pulled so many times and don't be wrong as much as we want to say about the philosophy and we can manage these transitional players. Ultimately, the knockdown effect of a first-team player then taking on a 23 player last minute because a first-team player's moved out and then the consequent effect of the 23s then need highly higher extra players or you're just having them sort of, them group of players now is another matter in itself. Um, and mostly sort of the transitional player sometimes just has to keep having microdosing of strength until we sort of know, arguably, what what group is he in? Is he going to be an under-23 player or is he an actually under-18 player? And sort of that communication aspect with the academy manager or your head of coaching or the coaching staff in general who will look after them into individual age groups are massive. Um, and mostly from an S&C point of view, it's mostly it's then how to develop a programme based on microdosing, which most I don't think is commonly commonly out there in terms of like academia literature but from speaking to other people whether that's been at UKSA conferences or bases it's where people seem to do it quite a lot but there's mostly no right or wrong answer and it's mostly from my aspect when I when I hear people talking it's going okay so what's the bread and butter based on microdosing because for me when I've come to conferences and I've watched great speakers obviously massively experienced people who work in great and performance clubs, whether that's got technology with it or not, a lot of the time when I'm hearing people about how they prescribe strength training, I just sometimes want to know what their bread and butter is. Yeah. So you've only got 20 minutes, 30 minutes because of X, Y, and Z, whether that's with a transitional player or another player, whether that's first team player. But what's your bread and butter? What do you want them to achieve out of that strength session? Mm. Now, for me personally, if I'm looking for a player that needs a strength-based session, my bread and butter is going to be, well, if I want intensity, but I want to lift high, I might put him to a trap bar deadlift mm-hmm. just because I can then get a stimulating load out of him. Now, if I'm looking at mostly more from a long-term athletic development point of view, where I know he's going to get pushed and pushed and pushed, maybe I just want to try and make sure that he does the basic work of the strength muscle, of the strength muscles group. So, right, I might just go into a single-leg RDL. Mm-hmm. I think that's mostly me understanding the individuals to what he needs, but ultimately at the same time, it's knowing what for myself is what do I want the player to achieve? What's the basics I want to achieve out of this week if he's getting overstretched and his programs had to change to sort of traditional strength training to a microdose and strength training. Mm. And also, don't we can all talk about how we want to go into horizontal pulls, vertical, <laughs> vertical pulls, vertical, horizontal pushes, vertical pushes, and so on, where that's upper body or lower body but ultimately it's having that sort of framework in place for myself is right so if it's microdosing strength can he hip hinge still can we get into a squat pattern can we get some core work into him and I really depend on the session is a push pull now for myself it's mostly a lot of them areas that mostly are really hard for our us as practitioners who are put on the spot and we're writing the programme really quickly but mostly in terms of how we chat about it and how it's actually performed is mostly less known mm. yeah because I'm sure there's, there'll be a number of people that have been in that situation where a coach has suddenly dropped 
it on you or work with this player. Um, you've got mm-hmm. you've got 15, 20 minutes. And I think that's a great way of putting it, like your bread and butter, knowing that, okay, yeah, I, I fully agree. You need to know the player. You need to know the circumstance of that player, don't you? And um, mm-hmm. all the things that you've touched on previously are really important. But having those exercises and those ways of working and those systems essentially in your head that you can revert to, then that's really important, isn't it? And I think it's something we yeah. all do and that everyone's mm-hmm. done. But like you said, whether it's talked about or systemized or any research done on it, then that's a, another um, conversation, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I think like for myself is when I've been putting them situations for my bread and butter sort of aspect, from there, I've actually changed programs on the youth players that I've got. Because sometimes I'm going, well, hold on. This player hasn't got it, right? Have we actually got it in these other players' programs? Because it should actually be part of what, if I think that's bread and butter, and if I'm at Barnes and I'm head of department, then that should be within the actual basic process of when we introduce foundational movements to under 14s or whichever age group you start your gym sessions with. Um, and that's mostly allowed then me to then create um, sort of an idea that John Newton's done with, obviously, he does his plyometric matrix program. Yeah, and for myself, that's where I've sort of put on that little mini bandwagon. There's the sort of like foundational movement program as a matrix, and sort of right if they can do a normal bodyweight squat, can they then do it with a dowel above their head? Can they do into a half single leg squat? And then that sort of gives me progressions already for the youth development phase as to even without loading them, is how much bodyweight they can do in terms of different various exercises, whether that's a squat pattern or a lunge pattern or whether that's a step-up pattern or whether that might be an isometric pattern. Mm. And then I suppose the next challenge with that is that if a player comes into the academy from another club that hasn't... Because if you get that programme in place at your club and it works through the ages and then you get that player and you've got to do the microdosing session, they've been through the whole programme, you know the history, Mm. then it's easier, isn't it, to then deliver that session. But if a player comes in from another club and hasn't had that, that training then that's obviously when it becomes harder and you, you have to be adaptable within that, in, in that environment. Yeah, massively. Yeah. Massively. Especially, especially for the ment- mentality of that person as well. So I had a player last year that came in at Barnsley where he got brought in from a non-league playing background and then he's coming to this world of sports science delivery, S&C delivery, and he had no movement pattern control. Yeah, he was the fastest kid, (laughs) the highest jumper in the team. So when you're looking at your testing, you're going, right, we've got an athlete here. (laughs) But fundamentally, he's got no patterns or functional movement patterns or movement patterns to however you want to describe it. And it's then, right, okay, so I need you to do this. But then he's looking at everyone else going, well, they're doing that, I want to do that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But then them lads are then giving it back to him. So (laughs) because they're telling him he's on the baby weight. So then it's like having to deal with that sort of environment then to then going, right, I've got another got another five different sessions arguably going on along in the gym. And then how you deal with that player is another thing itself. And you're sort of going back to your bread and butter to get that player to understand this is what needs to be achieved to then progress further. I think that's a great point because I think we've all had players like that that somehow defied the laws of uh, of what we've spent all these years studying, and then they'll they'll be <laughs> awful movers, but amazingly quick. And I know um, I think Cam Joss put some stuff out recently, hasn't he, about um, yeah. techniques and in team sports? And I think there's a lot more stuff to be done into that because I think we've all seen that in some way, shape, or form, haven't we? We all have these ideas yeah, of these 
really nice movers and that developing into the the strength side of things as well. But it's not always the case, is it? And I think that's a great no. point and something that we've all experienced in some shape or form. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's where, like, when we when we watch co- like conference sessions and things like that, I sometimes prefer the ones where they go, "We've got this kid. This is what we've done with him because he's absolutely like the the obscure athlete that's really good at mm. technical, tactical." Physically, he's really good, but he's got no movement control. Mm. So sometimes going, well, what, what actually do you do with him? Yeah. And I think a lot of the time that's mostly allows you to understand whoever's presenting is, well, that's actually their bread and butter because they think this is important. They think this is important. They think that's important. And sometimes for me, I get so much more out of that, knowing what someone's basics are and then how they then progress it off it. Yeah. Yeah, it's their, their way of thinking, isn't it? Because everyone's will be slightly different. There will be crossovers, I'm sure. But um, yeah, I think that's a great point that everyone's way of thinking can be a little bit different and their approach can be a little bit different to that that um, that circumstance, can't it, with uh, with different players? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think mostly with with the players themselves, it's then understanding, well, can they actually handle the environment? Because especially if they're coming from somewhere that have had no experience of it, or they're buying so low is then developing them ideas of going and sometimes it's going back to sort of your bread and butter as to what you've done with kids in the past especially myself when I've been teaching where right how can I get this player to actually do the work and focus on themselves yeah and sometimes it's having that traditional mentality of going well come on I'll literally hold your hand because you know that half your group three quarters of your group will be fine anyway they can just crack on as normal Sometimes it's trying to get this extra 5% out of players that out of players that aren't mentally there or an extra 5% because the players are nearly there. Yeah. No, that's class, mate. I think we said about before when we started recording, I wanted to make it a really relatable episode so people can take things away and put it straight into the practice. I think we've done that. Like the subjects that we've covered, we've covered before, but this is mm. this was definitely a podcast that people can listen to. Well, I think it was anyway. <laughs> they can listen to it. Just <laughs> we'll soon see, will we? <laughs> yeah, just take it and put put these ideas and not necessarily copy the whole thing, but um, listen to what you've been talking about and, and take some of these things and try it with players because you're speaking from experience. You've talked about loads of different circumstances, loads of different types of players, and I think there's some really good stuff in this. So um, no, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing all that, mate. I think that's been really valuable for coaches. Um I just wanted to get you to, if people have got questions, if they wanted to reach out to you, where's the best place that they can do that? Yeah, um, I'm fairly active on social media as of at the minute. Um, so if you want to follow me on Sam SamBow91, which is my Twitter tag, um, or I'm currently doing a little bit of my own private work at the minute whilst it's lockdown period. So on Instagram as well is sb.eliteperformance. Um, so anyone can feel free to message me, whether that's a DM or anything that's public um hopefully get to hear anybody anyone else's more experiences hopefully they're either relatable whether that's from a youth academy perspective when it's been based on maturation or they're on down line with your older players yeah and i encourage people to reach out i always like hearing them um, takeaways from episodes so reach out to us but also obviously to sam as well um and let us know what you took from it because i think there's definitely plenty of takeaways in this one so no, I really appreciate it, mate. Thanks for coming on and giving up your time. And um, we'll stay in touch. Yeah, no worries, Ben. Thanks for having me on. And like I said, if anyone feels free, I'm more than happy to share my experiences. Awesome. Thanks, mate.
No, cheers, mate. Thank you. Now, I said right at the start of the episode that the reason that one of the main reasons that I do this podcast is um, for selfish reasons that I can reach out and I can speak to coaches just like Sam. Um, and that is true that it's a conversation that might not have happened if the podcast wasn't in place. So I really do appreciate Sam coming on and, and having a chat. We, I'd never spoke to Sam before. Uh, we reached out to each other on social media um, and it was great to catch up with him. I think there's some really, really valuable points in this one. Um, I said at the start, like especially anyone that's in the academy environment, then I think there's some practical stuff you can take away and put into your practice straight away. Um, you can give Sam a follow on Twitter. He's at Sam B, uh, S-A-M-B-O-W and then 91. Um, takeaways for me were the individual gym approach. So pushing that onto players that it isn't about everyone else in there. Everyone should be improving and looking to improve themselves, um, which I think was really good. And then the personal prep, which sort of ties in with that. Um, he used the phrase personal prep, that that is what players are going in doing before training and any, any spare time that they've got. Um, I think that sort of defines it really nicely for per- players that they are just preparing for performance and it's their personal prep. I think that's really, really good. Um, and then also the microdosing of strength. And this is something that I think there is going to be more and more research coming out very, about very soon. Um, and I think it's something that we, I said in the episode, I think everyone's done it. But um, the approach that we take to that, and I've called the episode, What's Your Bread and Butter? And I know Sam referred to his bread and butter in terms of the microdosing strength programs that he does. And I think we probably have those in place without, whether we know it or not, like we have a sort of system in place that we revert to. But maybe we need to define that a little bit more and get some more um, defined systems in place for that. So they were my takeaways. I always like to hear yours. So reach out, let us know what your takeaways were from the episode and um, whether you found it beneficial or not. Like I said, I think there's loads in this one, but I'm keen to hear from academy coaches in particular, but that doesn't mean that you can't relate to first team level as well. Um, let me know what your takeaways were reach out to us at Football Fit Fed on social media but also reach out and tag Sam as well um, because I'm sure he'll be um, happy to hear what you guys took from the episode and um, yeah it'll be great to hear from you guys and like I said at the start and in the middle of the episode reach out with any recommended guests or subjects that you guys want to hear on on the podcast and I'll do my best to set those up for future episodes But huge thank you again for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate your support. Please share the show and subscribe to the show as well on Spotify or iTunes. And a big thank you again to Sam for coming on. And we'll catch you again on episode 97 next week.